Your Bibles, open up to the book of John. Um, last week, Jeff kicked off the series. It is rare that I don't get to kick off a series. I get quite jealous because I want to be the one to kick off a series um, because it's one of my favorite things in the world. Um, but I love Jeff's heart. And I love that Jeff dove into uh, what I think is one of the most quintessential questions of Jesus, uh, which is, who do men say that I am? And today, I want to dive into another question that I think is one of the more seemingly surfacely Surfacely, is that a word? I'm not sure. Um, ridiculous questions that Jesus asked. I don't know if you've ever saw some of the questions Jesus asked in the scriptures. Some of them seem ridiculous on the surface. And today is going to be one of those questions. And the question is, looking at a lame man, he simply asked the question, do you want to be healed? It sounds ridiculous. It's almost a duh, like, well, of course, but there's just so much more. And that's why we're taking the summer to dive in to the questions Jesus asked. So um, let me ask you this. When you think of being a kid, back when you were a kid, what was the lamest excuse you ever gave your parents? Think about things that you got caught doing, things that you forgot to do, things that you didn't mean to do, what was the lamest excuse you ever gave? How about this one? When I think of lame excuses, I think about teachers and homework. Do you remember the lamest excuse for not turning in your homework? Do you remember it? The dog ate my homework. One time I brought in my homework. My cat had chewed on the homework, and the teacher's like, this is a mess. I'm like, that's my, from my cat. They're like, how am I supposed to believe that? I'm like, I I'm not going to chew on my homework. And so I literally turned in something that my cat ate at one point. Uh, but I started looking up excuses. I started going down this fascination of excuses, and I found a ton of excuses why people called in late to work. So there's 50 of them. I chose a handful of them here. Um, here here's a lame excuse from a boss. Someone called in and says, I got my finger stuck in a bowling ball. A fox stole my car keys while I was asleep. A chicken attacked my mother. My goldfish is sick. Can we just admit they don't really live that long anyways? I had three goldfish uh, for a while growing up, Peter, James, and John. Yes, I was very biblical. And one died, and they tried replacing it automatically, and it just didn't work. Um, how about this one? My favorite character in my show died, and I'm in no emotional state to work. I went to get gas, but I couldn't get the cap off because my hands were too moisturized, so I had to call my boyfriend to come and do it for me. A cow broke into my house, and I'm waiting on the insurance man. We think our house is haunted, so I've called a priest. My soon-to-be ex-wife is burning all my possessions on the front lawn currently. Or this one. I climbed a tree to help a cat, and now I'm stuck. Who climbs a tree with their phone in their pocket? Um, and now because I grew up a pyromaniac, and I've got plenty of stories about that, but I, I was looking up excuses people gave the fire department. And this was like one of my favorite little stories. It says, uh, my wife's dad was a fire investigator. He was developing, sorry, investigating a house that got burnt down. A homeowner said that he sent a turtle with a candle on its back under the house trying to locate a noise. Later, he found a burnt-up turtle with wax on it. Oh, poor thing. Excuses. 
Now, these are excuses. Like, when you think about younger days, there were a lot of excuses we've come up. There's something that I think I'm enjoying about my 40s. It's because in my, in my teens, I knew everything. In my 20s, I absolutely confirmed I knew it all. My 30s, and there might be some things I don't know. My 40s, I celebrate what I don't know any longer. And what I never knew to begin with. And I feel like in my 40s, I have... Thousands less excuses than I ever did in my days. I think part of it, I was trying to come up with some sort of front. But I'm here to say that I don't think any one of us ever outgrow excuses. We don't. We get pulled over. Immediately, none of us want to confess, Sir, ma'am, I was driving too fast. What do we immediately come up with? We're trying to rack our brain. What motivated us to do 90 on I-94? Immediately, why... We have to come up with an excuse. But we don't overgrow excuses. We come up with maybe more educated ones, maybe sharper ones, maybe ones that sound a little bit better, sound a little bit more plausible. And I've learned this, is that just as much as we can come up with excuses to parents, to police officers, as we come up with excuses all the time to the Lord. And our excuses, can I be frank with you this morning, excuses are things in our lives that we love to, to, to leverage to help us with people. Because what we do is we give excuses to people to tell them why we don't have to do things. In fact, we give excuses to people that try to exonerate ourselves from having any responsibility. I don't have to do that. That's not my property. I don't have to do that. That's not my kid. I don't have to do that. That's not my responsibility. But I wonder if that's what we have done with God. Is we give God excuses in order to exonerate ourselves from any responsibility. I hope there's something that you caught in the spirit of Corin this morning that there is a place that God has brought her where God gave her a conviction that said, You can either give me excuse or you can give me obedience. But oftentimes, I would love to say that I always gave God my obedience, but there's oftentimes that I gave God my excuse. Because if I can give you an excuse, I can release myself. I can just separate myself from any responsibility because as long as I don't have responsibility, my work is done and I am scot-free. But my hope this morning is that God will put a conviction in the spirit of our hearts. That God will put something deep down within us that would choose not to seek the face of God and lean into the presence of God, but that we would be willing to be obedient because obedience is breeding ground for miracles. Obedience to Jesus is breeding ground for miracles. You, so many of us, God, I want God, I want you to do something in our city. So many of us are waiting for a move of God, but I would hear, be here to challenge that if the Spirit of God is in you, then guess what? I believe you are the move of God. You are ready to be motivated and leveraged by the Spirit of God. And all God is waiting for us is us to say yes to Him. Obedience. It's the breeding ground for miracles. And that's what brings us to John chapter 5. John 5, this story is just outstanding. If you've never read the book of John, y'all ought to read the book of John. If you've never read the Bible, here's a place to start. You need a Bible? We've got Bibles for you in the back. There's the Bible app. You can follow our notes this morning. But look here. We've got this amazing story that starts off, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. After this... Talking about chapter 4. There was a feast of the Jews, and Jews, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep's Gate a pool in Aramaic, Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there 
who had been invalid for 38 years. I'm going to stop right there. We've got an amazing setup to a story. We've got a feast that's going on. So Jerusalem is extra packed. And then we've got this idea, this understanding that there is a pool. It seems like a special pool because at this pool there are five porches. There are five colonnades that feed into this area surrounding all of these pools. In your brain, you're thinking about your pool in your backyard. That's not what we're talking about. We're looking at something like a natural spring. And there are five porches around these natural springs. And there is what we're told, lots of invalids, lots of people that are in the scripture describing as those who are blind, lame, and paralyzed. Uh, that word paralyzed in the Greek language means maimed. They've been broken. And one man who was there had been an invalid for how many years? 38 years. 38 years he has been there. 38 years. Now, in my brain growing up, and I would hear the story in Sunday school, I assumed this man was how old? 38 years. But we don't know how old this guy is. This guy could have been 38 when something had happened to him, and now he's 38 plus 38 is 76. Is that right? Wow, hallelujah. There's, there's a miracle of God right there. <laughs> this guy could be 76. Laying at this pool wanting a miracle to take place. We don't know how old he is, but we do know how long his condition has been present. He has been stuck for 38 years. And I'm here to say the longer that you're stuck in your situation, the longer that you're in your pain, the longer that you're in this mode of life, many times around that mode of life, you can start developing an ideology and even a psychology about your condition. So much that everything that you see in life is colored or framed with that condition. I'm here to say that somebody that deals with depression, there is a part of me that wants to take the depression that I can deal with frequently and begin to color everything in my world around that, that issue. So much that's all I begin to talk about. I surround my social circles with, around myself around that. That all of a sudden, my economy and everything that I spend my life on is all about that. My vision is centered around that. This is really who this man is. Everything about his life centers around his own brokenness. We don't know his name. We know his condition. But for 38 years, he has been laying in this same spot, hoping and praying that there would be a miracle. But so much that this guy most likely has been dropped off every morning by a family member or by a friend. Somebody dropped him off and they pick him up later. But for 38 years, he's been laying there. But everything about his life is not about healing any longer. The reality is he's about being stuck. And he's at this place called Bethesda. The word Bethesda there in the original language means house of mercy. But if you would have been there that day and the hundreds of people centered around that colonnade, it would have been the house of misery. He's broken. And the question is, what is he doing there? But I want you to go to verse 4. Now, if you, if you put up the screen, go up to the last, the last verse, the last slide. One before that, please. I want to show you something. One, one more. All right, look at this. Verse 3. Then lay the multitude of invalids blind. Next slide. Lame and paralyzed. Verse 5. One you see, we're missing a verse. Now, if you've got the King James Version, you've got verse 4 that is sitting there. 
Now, the reason why verse 4 is missing from most of our modern translations is because this was added at a later date, and it was removed in most modern translations because the older manuscripts do not contain this verse. What does the verse say? I'm glad you've asked me that question. It says that he was waiting for the moving of the water, for the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred up the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, I grew up reading the King James, and so in my brain, God would send an, an angel to stir up the water, to cause it to bubble up, and then like a madhouse, whoever got into the water first got their healing. Now, the re again, the reason why this was taken out is because this was not in the older um, manuscripts, but also, this actually wasn't the Lord. God did not stir an angel. I'm thinking of all the things God has angels doing. The last thing is like, okay, don't forget to go stir the water. It had nothing to do with that. In fact, it became a superstition of the people because it was natural springs, and natural springs would, would naturally bubble up in the water, and so somebody started this folklore. Somebody started something that said, well, that must be an angel, and if the first person, the first person gets into the water, they're going to be healed. Can I tell you who probably got into the water the first when the water stirred? Was probably the healthiest person there. Wrap your head around that. I've got a sniffle. Water stirred. I'm in the water. I feel better already. And you walk away and everybody is all wet, getting out, and they're still laying there. Now picture this because this will break your heart. Everybody gets out of the water and lays there staring at the water, hoping maybe their chance will come up. They are so focused on the water, so focused on what they might get that perhaps they're missing out on the greater picture of what God wants to do in their life. But isn't that all of us? Don't we all get so caught up in symptoms that we never really ask God what he wanted to do deeper in us? Let me, let me show you something here. Bob almost put my illustration away today. I hope you can see this. Y'all see the mark? This is not a good thing, by the way. Here's a ceiling tile. And so you see this mark. What is this mark a sign of? Somebody said it. Y'all said water. Rick down here, a leak. Water is one thing, but when water is leaking, we've got a different issue. But what happens so often in our life is that we have these moments where something happens in us. Something impacts our life. And as Sometimes Western American Christians, what we end up doing is because something has made us uncomfortable, we begin to pray about surface issues, never truly saying, God, would you begin to search our heart to look at the deeper things? And quite often we are chasing after ceiling tile moments. God, I need you to fix this look in my life. I need you to fix that look in my life. Because I don't know about you, it's easy just to take a tile and to go fix it in a room and say, look, the leak is gone. Some of us are chasing after stains when God wants to heal the leak. We are chasing after the marks of what has happened rather than saying, God, do something deep in me because instead of wasting my time fixing tiles, God, I want you to renew something so that I'm healed from the inside out. I need something fixed. 
people are coming to Jesus, and quite often in our Western world, all we want him to do is fix the needs. But too many people are ready to trust Jesus with needs, but they're not ready to trust, them with, trust him with their lives. We love Jesus as Savior. We want Jesus to save us from our sin. But Jesus wants to do more than save you from your sin. He wants to be Lord of your life. He wants to be Lord of your life. Man, we can't be serving Jesus just on Sundays. We've got to give Jesus every single day. Instead of just raising my hands saying, God, forgive me. And we go back around just leaking sin back into our life. If you want to fix your life, stop trying to fix it Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. Live for Jesus every single day. Live it every day. Go after it every single day. But the lame man, he's got this excuse. His idea, I, if I could just get helped into the water, if I could just be the first in the water. I don't know about you. When I look at this man, my heart doesn't really judge him. My heart is broken for him. Because I bet you 38 years ago, he showed up thinking, I'll be here just a week. A couple days. And it turned into a month. And it turned into two months. And then it turned into a year. To two years. I mean, listen to me. I remember walking through my message and I'm just kind of listing this out. And I'm like, my heart is just breaking for this man. Because the water stirs and he can't walk there. And so he's got to push with his hands. Can you imagine after 38 years how callous his hands are? And not only is his hands callous, I bet you all over his body, he has bruises from people tripping over him, getting ahead of him. And so this man, he's got calluses on his hands, but I bet you he's got calluses on his heart. He is bruised on the outside from people tripping over him and stepping on him in order to get their miracle. Man, think about that. People stepping on him and tripping on him, and no one once is looking down and seeing, let me help this man and, and get him to his healing. My heart breaks. But at some point, you're no longer looking for the pool, but you're content living on the porch. At some point, many of us, we get so consumed with what we're dealing with that we're no longer looking for the healing. We are content living on the porch. You're no longer pressing in. You're no longer trying. I think of what Emily was stirring you up to do this morning. You're no longer getting your faith in Jesus because you've just sat back and say, well, if this is my lot in life, then this is just where, I am, where I'm at. For some of you, you've stopped trying to ask for healing. You've stopped pressing into God. You've given up hope, and you're content living on the porch. And you want to know the words of somebody who is content living on the porch and who have just given up on God? It's people who use the words, it is what it is. There's a famous Behringer line right there. My dad says that almost every time we're on the phone. It is what it is. That's what we say, don't we, when we've given up hope? Well, that person will never change. It just is what it is. I've been dealing with this sickness. I've been dealing with this hurt. This, this thing has fractured my life. It just is what it is. It's as if we say, we could just, just sit in this lot in life. It just is what it is. It's as if this sickness has happened. It is what it is. My parent is a jerk. It is what it is. My kids are rebellious. It is what it is. We just get in this mode where we have written off God and we've stopped trying to press in. We've trapped, stopped trying to lean into him. We gave up hope to ever find healing for the fracture in our life. It is what it is. And what I love is the vision of Jesus in this scripture. Because if you look at this now, this will kind of mess with somebody's theology this morning. Jesus healed a lot of people, didn't he? 
Thank you. <laughs> he healed a lot of people. And Jesus walked into a situation for which there are always hundreds of people around these, these pools. And because there's a festival happening, there's even more there now. And Jesus walked past all of the sick people there, and he went to one. Now, I don't know how to explain that, why Jesus walked past a few and went to a certain one. I, I don't know how to explain that, but you know what I really got encouraged by? The fact that there was a time in my life where I felt like I was the man that has been just in this mode for 38 years. I don't know if you're here this morning and you feel like you've been forgotten, that you have been walked over, you've been trampled over, you have been forgotten, you have been left behind, that, that nobody even notices you anymore. And this guy has been here for so long, 38 years, that nobody notices him anymore because he's not new. Anybody new shows up, they get the attention. Anybody new shows up, they could probably move faster than him. And he has just learned to blend into the wallpaper. But I love this word that Jesus went straight to the man. Why? Because it reminds me that I can get myself lost in the crowd. I can feel lost in the crowd, but even though I feel lost in the midst of a group of people, you're never lost in the view of Jesus Christ. He sees you. He knows you, and he's looking for you, and I love the word in Psalms that says that his goodness and mercy will pursue me all of the days of my life. I want to encourage you today that you may feel forgotten and unnoticed by the world, but you're still noticed by God. You're still noticed by God, and he calls us to reach out, look at verse 6. This is so funny. Verse 6. It says, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been, he'd been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? This dude is not even paying attention. I'm willing to bet he's already heard about Jesus. I bet you Jesus shows up and people start buzzing. That's the healer. That's the healer. That's the, that's the supposed Messiah. This guy has not even, he's not even reached out. He's waiting for somebody to come get him. He's given up all hope. And Jesus walks up to this guy and he gives him a simple question. It's the question of the day. Do you want to be healed? It sounds so ridiculous. For the past few weeks, I've actually given the wrong number. I keep saying Jesus asked 137 questions in Scripture. I don't know where I got that number. I think I took two of the numbers and I mixed it up in my own brain. Dave and Math, by the way. It is actually, Jesus was asked, Jesus asked, excuse me, 307 questions in Scripture. He was asked 183 questions and he gave eight answers. How frustrating is that? I mean, think about it. We always say, Jesus has all the answers, doesn't he? Actually, Jesus has all the questions. Jesus asked questions over and over and over. Why did he ask questions? Because of this. Jesus asked us questions because questions do not allow us the luxury of staying at the surface. When I, when I meet with uh, couples for premarital counseling, we start walking through. One thing that I tell them in session number one is I'm not here to give you all the answers. I'm actually here to give you questions. The biggest question, do I want to be married to that? For real. I had one, one person call off their wedding the week of the wedding. Pastor, why didn't it work? I'm like, it did. You're welcome. I want people to ask good questions, to answer good questions, because questions make us go below the surface. 
Questions make you go deep. Because when you start giving answers to his questions, the answers invite action. Like when God spoke to Ezekiel and said, who will go? Ezekiel had one answer and he had to say it out loud, I'll go, send me. See, when Jesus asks you a question, it's not because he's trying to get information he does not have. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sinned and they, they covered themselves in fig leaves, they hid from God, and God's walking to the garden saying, yo, where are you? And Adam and Eve are like, we were hiding. Listen, when God's saying, where are you? He knows where they're, they're at. He's wanting us to admit it because when we answer his questions, it gets us below the surface and it demands actions on our parts. And so Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, going another steps down before me. Immediately, instead of saying yes, Do you want to be healed? It's somebody else's fault. Do you want to be healed? Well, other people would take their responsibilities. Do you want to be healed? You would think it's my turn, but these other people. So often, Jesus is pounding questions at us, and all we can do, and we do it so well in our current culture, is we love to point the finger and find somebody else to blame. Why is Jesus asking this man this question? It's, it's found in one word, and the word is desire. Desire. If you're a note taker, write down the word desire, because the Latin for the word desire, it's a Latin word, it means desire, it means of the Father. He wants to get down to the desire of this man. What is true desire? True desire, Jesus wanted him to get the heart of God, the heart of the Father deep down inside of him. What does the scripture say in the book of Psalms? That if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give you the desire. Now, it doesn't mean that, that God is not the genie in the bottle where we just rob the Bible and God gives us whatever we want. That's just crappy theology right there. We delight ourselves. We lean into the Lord. We find our life into the Lord, and he puts within us his desires. What's desire? It's of the Father, that when you have desires of God, it's the same desires that God has for you that he's got of this world. Do you want a good litmus test if you've got godly desires? If it matches with the character and the person of Jesus Christ, it's a godly desire. And he wanted him to get new desires. When you delight yourself in God, God starts putting his heart into yours. And your desires in the center of your life becomes of the Father. You begin to look at the stains in your life and you begin to say, my desires, the things that used to feed those stains, the things that used to feed the brokenness, the things, God is going to begin to heal those. Why? Because God's starting to shift my heart around. And when you delight in God, he blends his heart into yours. And he says, but there's nobody to put me in here. Now, this is how we normally read it. I love this. This is how we normally read this. Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. I want to read this to you in the way it's actually written in the Greek, with the same intensity. Do you want to be healed? Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Get up! Take up your bed and walk. In the Greek, 
Jesus, the Greek signifies two specific things. Number one, that Jesus is interrupting this guy. And secondly, he gives him a command, not a suggestion. I've got nobody. Nobody's here to help me. Get on up. In the spirit of James Brown, get on up. It's time to get on up. He's like, listen, you have been fixated for 38 years. It's more than just a condition of your body. There was a condition in his soul that just said, I can't get up. I can't do it. I can't accomplish it. We live in the world of I, 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 I. But when a Christ becomes the center of our life and the center of our focus, you're right, there are some moments where we can't, we can't. But that's why we've got the Spirit of God in us that begins to look at situations that the world says was in possible and God can make all things possible through him that believes there's nobody put me in get up get up I love the progression right there first he says get up the idea that you you can't do what you can do underneath your own power so the words get up is Jesus saying I need you to put your faith in me for me to do in your life what only I can do too often we've got faith for the things we can do Boy, I've got, I've got a lot of faith for things that I can do as long as I've got enough money in the bank account. If I woke up on the right side of the bed, I've got faith for what I can accomplish physically. If I've got a good calculator, I've got faith for what I can do with math. We've got plenty of faith for the things that we can accomplish by ourselves. But Jesus, when he says the words get up, he's saying look at me, trust in me, and let me do what I know I can do. Get up. You see, miracles happen when our, when our capacity collides with the compassion of Jesus. When my capacity, I've been here 38 years. Jesus is like, listen, I need your capacity to meet with my compassion. And if you let my compassion collide with your condition, miracles happen. Get up. Ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus tells you to get up from something... He's going to provide you the ability to do it. He doesn't tell you to do something that, and not give you the power or the ability to do it when he says, get up. For some of us, it's time to get up from worry. It's time to get up from fear. It's time to get up from anxiety. It's time to get up from doubt. It's time to get up from pain in our past. It's time to get up from our insecurity. It's time to get on up and realize it's time to walk in our healing. Does God want to heal me? I believe the answer is yes. And my trust is not in what I'm going to be able to do, but trusting in what he can do. You see, we have to learn how to live in response to what Jesus has spoken, not in reaction to what the devil is doing. God, help the American church to stop living in reaction to what the devil is doing. You know what? I can go on the news and see what the devil is doing. Pick either poison on your cable networks. You can find out what the devil is doing. And I'm sick and tired of being reactionary to everything the devil is doing. I'm tired of being a reactionary Christian. I want to be a pioneer Christian that knows that there is darkness, but he who is within me is greater, who is within the world. There can be something happening by the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. We can be agents of healing. You can be agents of, oh, oh, woe is us. Or we can be a move of God ready to go into the city to say, Jesus loves Kalamazoo. He loves Portage. He loves Pawpaw. He, he loves Comstock. He loves Goebbels. He loves these places. But he's waiting. Listen, the world is waiting for the church to rise up, full of the Spirit of God, ready to get up. But not just get up. Secondly, 
And Emily, if you don't play on the keyboard soon, I'm going to be talking forever. Number two says, get up, then he says, take up your bed. Why is that such a big deal? This is amazing progression. Because many of us, we'll come to God and we'll get something cleaned up. And what we do is when we get cleaned up on Sunday, is we just go back and lay into things that God had set us free and free from. We go back to the provision of, of what supplied our life before Jesus touched our life. We keep going back. It was said in uh, 1519 that Cortez, when he came to the New World, one of the first things that he did when everybody got off and all the, all the ships got unloaded is he destroyed, sank, and burned the ships. Why? Because we are fixated on going one direction. We're fixated on the newness of what is in front of us, on the vision that lies ahead of us, and there's no going back. Jesus said, take up your bed. Take up, don't leave it on the ground as if you should go back to it. Because there's always a temptation that when God pulls us out of something, that Monday morning in our brains we think we still feel the same. The week still looks the same. I'll just go back and do the things that I did before. Jesus said, take up your bed. Don't go back to that. You've been set free. Some of us, the things that the enemy has been working in your life, it is time to burn the ships. It's time to set things aside that used to take you down roads of temptation. It's time to shut down some relationships that have been facilitating the gossip. It's time to end the things that have been facilitating your addictions. It's time to set it down, to take up the bed, and to set it aside. And the last thing it says is walk. He gives them the power to rise up, to walk forward, to keep going. He says, get up, rise up, and walk. Man, we all love Jesus that saves us. But Jesus wanted him to do more than just get up and take up the bed. He wanted him to start living a life in the direction of the sovereign God. So much that if we look at the rest of the story, verse 9, at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Man, pretty obedient. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. That's actually not true. You weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, but the community created these lists of rules. So carrying your bed was work. And so this is what's crazy. Nobody is celebrating that he's walking now. They're just hacked that he went to K-first and he's carrying something on the way to K-first. Be careful of the people that will talk down the move of God in your life. Be careful about the people that want to discourage you. God gave you a calling. You can't go to North Korea. God called you to, to be a voice to your school, a voice on your team. You can't do that. Be careful. There will always be those voices. But stop listening to four of the voices down here and start lifting up your ear to the voice above that says, get up and go. And he says to them, the man who healed me, that man, doesn't even know it's Jesus, said, take up your bed and walk. It's somebody else's problem. Dude's full of excuses. And they ask him, who is this man? They said, take up your bed. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. Afterwards, so the next Sunday, he found him at K-first, and he says, see, you are well. Sin no more 
so that nothing worse may happen to you. See, so many of us are wrapped up in the physical stuff. If the physical got better, then all will be better. But Jesus gets to his core saying, listen, I didn't heal you so you can walk. I healed you so you can live. The emphasis for most of us is the walk side. But Jesus didn't come so that we can walk. He came so that we can live. To set us free. Body, soul, spirit. And at K-First, there's one thing that we believe in a number of things in terms of our doctrine. And one of our pieces of doctrine is we believe in divine healing. And we believe for those of you that are here today that if you are in physical pain, there's something that's going on as a diagnosis, we believe in healing. For so, those of you, maybe you're like me, you deal with some mental issues. One thing that I've celebrated over the past few years is the, the frequency and the severity of my depression has been lesser and lesser and lesser. And I look at that and I say, Lord, it's to God be the glory. Some of you have been going through those challenges. Do I believe God can heal you? You better believe it. Well, Pastor, you're not completely healed yet. You know what? I'm not completely healed yet, but I know God will completely heal me. And even if he waits until heaven, he will then completely heal me. But until then, I will trust him to continue to get up, to take up my bed, and to follow after him. But maybe you've got some pain. Maybe you've got some agony. Maybe you've been dealing with it for 38 years. I ask you a question. Do you want to be healed? And if so, it's just time to, it's time to get on up. I'm sorry, James Brown is stuck in my head today. It's time to get on up. It's time to stop sitting in your suffering. It's time to get on up. It's time to rise up and to call upon the name of Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me?